You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs every third Wednesday of the month at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 90.9 FM. We feature interviews with local Canadian authors, poetry and fiction readings, as well as fun literary segments. This episode of Writer's Block is brought to you by a student-driven collective. If you would like to get involved with our show, please drop us a line and let us know. If you ever miss our show live, check us out on cjsw.com. Without further ado, let's get started. Tonight on Writer's Block, we'll be featuring an interview with Ethan Liu about his works of nonfiction, as well as an interview with Jacqueline DeForge about her new poetry collection, Danger Flower. We will also be featuring a short Calgary literary segment, as well as a short flash fiction reading by Maria A. Iwanu. Coming up first, we have an interview with Jenny Kwong interviewing Ethan Liu, author of two non-fiction books. Stay tuned. My name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And so today I have Ethan Liu on the phone. So welcome, Ethan. Hey. So Hello. I guess... Uh, thank you for having me. Great to be here. The last time I saw you, it was in Calgary. At that point, uh, were you uh, thinking, already thinking of writing a book about uh, your Bitcoin experience? Yes. Uh, yeah, the last time we saw each other, that was a long time ago, eh? That was uh, 2019, right? And yep. so th- this book, the, the deal for this was struck early 2019, and I started putting together the proposal in 2018. And I think by then, I was probably halfway writing it. And so how did you start as a business reporter? Um, so I basically got that job. Uh, it was my first job out of university. So I, I graduated in 2015, and that was in Toronto. And I, I worked for the Toronto Star after that, and I was working there while I was in school as well. Uh, and then after that, there was a series of contracts, and my first real permanent job was with Reuters. And that was in Toronto, but it brought me to lots of places. I ended up working in New York for a while, and uh, my last posting was in Calgary. And uh, that's how we met. That's what brought me to Calgary, and I was covering oil there. And I didn't actually cover a lot of crypto, but I did cover a bit. One of the people I interviewed was uh, a guy who went on to found Ethereum. And that was, that was one of my introductions to the subject. And so how did you get involved with the, I guess, uh, Bitcoin uh, community in Calgary? Um, so to, to backtrack a little, so when I arrived in Calgary, I was uh, quite involved in, in crypto myself already. Uh, it started uh, while I was still in university, and it's a bit of a separate thing from um, my, my own reporting. But w- when I got to Calgary, uh, that was 2017, and that was when... Bitcoin that was really raging that year. It went from a thousand to twenty thousand. So there was a lot of activity. There was a lot of energy and hype in the space. And I I went to a meetup, uh, meetup.com. You know, uh, people, Bitcoin enthusiasts wanting to meet each other. And uh, I think that was my first exposure to uh, the local community in Calgary. And so, how did uh, Bitcoin start? Was it a distraction during the financial crisis in two thousand and eight and nine? Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, if we backtrack uh, 
quite a bit. Uh, 2008, 2009, that was when Bitcoin was introduced to the world. In its first batch of transactions, the, the creator encoded a message, the reference to a headline that uh, governments were basically giving a second round of uh, bailouts to, to the banks. And I, I think it's clearly evident that uh, the sentiment behind Bitcoin, there was a lot of frustration at the, at the, the state of the world and how uh, mainstream finance uh, is deemed to be uh, responsible for a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the misery of society. And I think uh, out of that, uh, the people behind Bitcoin, they were searching for an alternative. And how has the Bitcoin or crypto has grown uh, over the years? How has it become part of mainstream conversation? A lot of my book takes place in, uh, in, in Calgary and uh, about my adventures in this space. And I, I just found it endlessly fascinating. And um, that was the year that Bitcoin went from uh, 1,000 to 20,000. So imagine that 20x and there was so much activity there and... I think that would be the year when uh, Bitcoin just really burst into the mainstream because I was going to those meetups and I was seeing uh, lots of new entrants, people who uh, didn't really know anything about technology or, or, or finance, but you know they, they saw it on the news and they thought they could make some money. And I think at the time, uh, the, this domain was filled with a lot of people like that. And uh, why should folks be paying attention to Bitcoin at the moment? And uh, what are uh, recent developments? Well, um, the the most recent development was a crash, I think. Uh, I, I, at least uh, some people call it a crash. I think that was a, a, about a 5 to 6% drop. Um, but if you were to broaden out, I, I think what is uh, most significant uh, is uh, in the past year, El Salvador has made uh, Bitcoin its legal tender. So that's a, a whole country has been adopting that. And uh, another big thing is uh, the concept of NFTs and the whole metaverse thing. Uh, remember when Facebook announced that it was going to build an immersive virtual reality space and big pillar of that is crypto. And crypto is doing the, NF the metaverse thing before Facebook came in. And I think that is, uh, is a concept that will take hold and that's a domain in which crypto will have a bigger role. And why are governments uh, getting involved in crypto? For lots of reasons, I, I guess uh, they, they they see that as the they, they see value in the technology. I guess uh, China, if you if you look at what China's doing, it's developing its own digital currency, and it is the the most advanced among all the countries. And it's it's actually a, a working product, and lots of people in China are using the Chinese digital yuan in their day to day lives. So once a Bitcoin uh, miner is actually your second book. But you wrote it before your debut book, which is a field note on the pandemic. So what was it like put, uh, working on these two different books in a short period of time? So the funny thing is that Once a Bitcoin Miner, that was, that was actually my first book. So it's the second to be published, but it's actually the first that I wrote. So I, I was writing it when we last met and my, my deadline was the end of 2019. And so I basically finished up all the writing uh, before 2020. And, and then the pandemic hit. So I, I very accidentally ended up writing the other book. The other book pushed the Bitcoin book to be released this year. I, the Bitcoin book wasn't written during the pandemic, but uh, the pandemic book that was definitely written during a pandemic. Uh, I must say it was definitely a bit of an interesting experience. And particularly given the, the very tight 
deadline on uh, on the pandemic book. I, I basically wrote that whole thing in two months, and I'm still uh, shocked that I was able to do that, and I will never do that again. Part of the pandemic book was your travels through Asia at the beginning of the pandemic, and so how do both of these uh, narratives in the two books? How do they fit? Together in in your own mind as you go go forward, I guess. Yeah. Well, so the I'll start with the Bitcoin book. So chronologically, that takes place before before the pandemic. So that basically follows my journey as an early investor in this space, and I delve into some of the uh, important events in crypto, and which. Uh, I had a first-hand insight.、Uh, I think one of them was that I was in North Korea with a person from the Ethereum Foundation, Virgil Griffith, who was later arrested and has pleaded guilty to helping North Korea avoid sanctions through through blockchain. And so the the book kind of gives you an exclusive inside view of what happened in those seven days in Pyongyang. And ultimately, it's、uh, I, I like to think of it as a, as a bit of a western, and the narrative arc follows that. As an adventurer going into into a new land. After that,、uh, I guess field notes from a pandemic. It actually takes place just directly after that, and it's quite a different book. And it's not one that I had wanted to write. It actually、uh, evolved from an essay I wrote in McLean's, and that's more of a well. While it has narrative elements, once a Bitcoin miner, it's a narrative nonfiction. It reads like a novel. Field notes from a pandemic. It's more. Uh, it, it does follow me through my travels in Asia, but、uh, ultimately, it's also a more stand-back look, and it's a lot of parts also essayish, like analyzing the situation. Back to Bitcoin.、Uh, what your what were your findings in North Korea that you were able to talk about at this time? So that was a that was a pretty fascinating trip. It was also entirely unexpected. I was quite excited when I heard that North Korea was、uh, announcing a.、Uh, Crypto conference, and because North Korea, as we know, is under a lot of economic sanctions, and it basically cannot conduct economic,、uh, international trade. And crypto theoretically is a way out of that. And North Korea has been accused of lots of shady stuff to do with crypto. And I thought by going to North Korea, I would get insight into what North Korea、uh, has been doing. It turns out that. We the the foreign participants. There were eight of us.、Uh, we we thought we were going there to、uh, take in information from the Koreans, but when we arrived, we were told that you guys are in fact supposed to be the lecturers, and you're supposed to explain crypto to the North Koreans. And that was such a bizarre thing. While I think Virgil Griffith,、uh, he did arrive knowing that he was going to be a speaker because he was a crypto big shot.、Um, the rest of us were not expecting that, and the entire week was was quite weird.、Uh, if you watch the movie The Death of Stalin, I think there's a lot of、uh, post-Soviet black humor in there. Ultimately, I was very surprised when、uh, I heard the news、uh, six months after the trip that Virgil Griffith was arrested for it. And yeah, the next time I saw him was in court. What has uh, been uh, some、um, reactions from regulators over the Bitcoin at this time? Well, if we if we want to talk specifically about the the Virgil Griffith case,、uh, what I what I found most interesting is that. So the Virgil Gri-、uh, Americans,、uh, to backtrack a little, they are not allowed to go to North Korea without express permission. So when he went to North Korea, he had actually asked permission、uh, from his government, and they denied it to him. 
and he decided to go anyway. So when he went there, the, his government already knew he was going. I don't think that turned out very well for him. And afterward, I don't think he was suspecting anything. He met quite willingly with the Justice Department, with the FBI, and he was basically arrested on on the day of Thanksgiving. And his case took two years to unfold. And I cover some of that in the book, but not all. Ultimately, he pleaded guilty, and it was that was a surprise as well. And this whole thing uh, has been uh, quite the journey. Uh, what have you taken from this experience of through Bitcoin, and where do you see it going in the future? I, I think uh, so. I, I did write this in the Globe and Mail. There was an essay uh, that I wrote when the the book came out, and so I like to think the thesis of the book is that it prevents it presents uh, the world of uh, crypto as a, as a bit of a wild west, not in a in a bad way. You know, people have compared the world of crypto to the wild west of finance. I come to that conclusion as well, but. Uh, I think my my reasons differ, and I don't think the Wild West is a bad thing. I think why people sought the Wild West uh, back in the day, they were seeking something. Uh, they were seeking riches. Um, they were seeking to be free from the societal hierarchies back home, and they were seeking uh, a wide open space, or at least in their view, a, w- a wide open space that was welcoming to everyone. And I think this world of crypto it, it represents that to to many of the people who go into it. And I think that ultimately that's the message of the book. I try to look at this through the eyes, through the lens of the human condition. So it's not a technical book. And ultimately, I think uh, as for where we'll go in the future, I think we will definitely see crypto and blockchain forming a bigger part of our lives and creeping in, uh, perhaps without our realizing it in in many aspects. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Ethan, for your time today. Oh, yeah. it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, and happy New Year, I guess. You too. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. That was my conversation with Ethan Liu, author of two non-fiction books, Once a Bitcoin Miner and Field Notes from a Pandemic. He worked as a business reporter for the Toronto Star and Reuters. His writing has appeared in the Globe and Mail and the Financial Post. That's it for me. Talk to you again next time. That was Jenny Kwong's interview with Ethan Liu. Coming up next is a short segment on literary history. Stay tuned. CJSW. No adverbs allowed. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Today's segment on literary history includes a feature on a grim writer that was born today on January 19th. The following is a segment from one of their famous poems. Can you guess who it is? Here's the verse. Take this kiss upon thy brow, and in parting from you now, thus much let me avow, you are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream. Yet if hope has flown away, in a night or in a day, in a vision or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. Were you able to guess who it is? If not, let's keep going. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep. While I weep, while I weep, 
O God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? O God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? Could you guess who it is? If you guessed Edgar Allan Poe, you are correct. That was a short segment from his poem, Dream Within a Dream. With that, that concludes our segment today on literary history. Tune in next month for more fun facts. Coming up next, we have a weird book segment with Emma Smith. Stay tuned. CJSW. No adverbs allowed. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. I'm always on the lookout for an interesting read. Sometimes a new compelling find can show up in the most unexpected of places. When I went to visit the Meow Foundation's charity thrift shop in search of a Christmas gift for my cat, I did not expect to find a new read for me. The long, giant book peeked out from a small shelf just enough for me to catch a glimpse of the collage of old newspapers on the cover. When I read the title, I knew I had to have it. Written across the front of the book in bold red letters was as reported in the Herald. It was a collection of old newspaper clippings from Calgary's first newspaper, the Calgary Herald. The size of the book mimics the look and feel of a traditional newspaper. The loud rustle of the first page as it flips open betrays the paper's weight. Printed in large format on the second page is a scanned copy of the Calgary Herald's very first publication. Then going by the lengthy title of The Calgary Herald, Mining and Ranch Advocate and General Advertiser, printed its first edition on August 31, 1883. The paper begins with a list of advertisements, the first one being a name still familiar today, the Canadian Pacific Railway Company. The printed letters are small and have bled somewhat on the page, making them difficult to read, but a list of times in Canadian cities can be made out through the blotchy ink, along with the disclaimer that all trains run on Winnipeg time. Curiously, there is also a notice for the Bow River Ferry. A Google search for the Bow River Ferry doesn't reveal many results, but a pioneer by the name of Samuel Fogg is remembered for beginning Calgary's very first ferry service in 1882. Could this be the same ferry advertised in Calgary's first ever newspaper publication? The local news on August 31, 1883 had a range of stories, from the exceptionally banal to the violent and murderous tales that you might expect to hear come out of the Wild West. Under the personals is a short report on the daily activities of some of Calgary's earliest citizens, like Mr. Jacques has gone to Winnipeg to purchase a stock of jewelry, or Baron de Longoy of Montreal and Dr. Grant Jr. of Ottawa are in town and propose to visit the mountains shortly. One story of thievery stands out among the rest. A number of petty thefts, it reads, have lately been committed in the vicinity, but the smallest thing we've heard of was the cutting and stealing of the ropes from the footbridge across the elbow. This is a matter of some importance, as strangers coming into town are very liable to get a cold bath gratuitously. We hope the ropes will soon be replaced. 
The introduction to this collection of snapshots of local journalism describes what it would have been like to work at the Herald 150 years ago. The founders of the paper were Andrew M. Armour and Thomas B. Braden, childhood friends who decided to take a chance in the newspaper business together. And it was not an easy start. The book describes how the Herald in the beginning was a very shaky enterprise. In an area with only a few hundred prospective readers, working with a hand-operated press and a small supply of type, Armour and Braden turned out a four-page tabloid paper every week, from a tent about 14 by 20 feet wide. The Herald's equipment came in on the first CPR freight train to Calgary, and the address on the shipment summed up Armour and Braden's choice of place to go into the business. The label read, T.B. Braden, end of track. Flipping through the rest of the book, there are a lot of eye-catching photographs from throughout Calgary's history. One in particular stood out from the rest, an old black and white photograph of an officer standing in the middle of the road, turned facing a pair of black shoes. The caption on the photo reads, probably the most famous Herald picture, taken in 1950 by Harry Beefus, the scene of a fatal accident in which a pedestrian was knocked out of his rubbers and thrown 35 feet. It won several awards and was even reprinted in Life magazine. I hope you enjoyed this peek into Calgary's journalistic past as much as I did. If you liked this segment, be sure to tune in next month as I go in search of a new old book. That was our monthly weird book segment with Emma Smith. You are tuned into another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. CJSW. No adverbs allowed. If you are interested in volunteering with CJSW and helping out with our podcast, please contact us to get involved with our show. We love connecting with new volunteers and literary enthusiasts. Coming up next, we have an interview with Maddie Robinson and Jacqueline DeForge on her new poetry collection, Danger Flower. Stay tuned. Hi, everybody. This is Maddie Robinson with CGSW interviewing Jacqueline DeForge about her new poetry collection, Danger Flower with Palimpsest Pressed. Um, hi, Jacqueline. It's great to have you on today. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you. I bought your poetry collection recently and I found it very interesting. So I thought I'd reach out to you and ask you a couple of questions about it. Uh, first off, did you want to introduce yourself and talk about your writing career? Sure. Yeah, I've, I've had, uh, well, I'm Jacqueline DeForge. I've had a bit of a varied writing career. I started off in journalism school. Uh, and then I started writing for women's magazines. I had a baby, took some time off and then decided to become a poet and then ended up writing a children's book too. And now I'm writing some short stories. So I, I'm kind of an all over the place writer. Um, I'm really, really excited about this collection, uh, which was just named one of CBC's picks for best um, best poetry of 2021, which was super, super mind blowing. And I was very, very <laughs> so happy to see that. And uh, yeah, it's, that's me. I, I write stuff. And uh, I'm an MFA student at the University of British Columbia as well. I'm just finishing up my thesis right now, slash doing, you know, virtual schooling with my seven year old daughter and uh, living here in Hamilton with my with my partner and my kids. So that's me. 
Well, it's, it's super phenomenal that your work got featured on CBC. That's such an amazing accomplishment. It's always so exciting to see your name in, in the press like that, something huge. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really exciting feeling. So since you do a lot of multi-genre sort of writing, and I know a lot of artists will go into one genre before they switch to a different genre because they realize they've they've kind of shifted their approach. Um, what, what brought you to writing poetry and deciding to do a poetry collection specifically? Well, I, I think of myself as sort of a, I think there's different kinds of writers, there's different kinds of minds that are attracted to writing. And the kind of mind that I have is uh, very sort of rhythmic and musical. And um, I know that some writers um, think a lot about stories. And I don't, I don't tend to think in terms of stories or things that happen, I sort of have this like radio station in my head for poetry and, and the words are sort of running through my brain at all times. So I tried to be very practical and go be a reporter, but I, I, I was too smiley and it, it just wasn't. You're too good of a mood for bad news all the time. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I didn't, you know, I, I liked the writing part and, and the reporting part was nerve wracking. And anyway, so when I had the opportunity to take some time after my daughter was born and focus on my, you know, sort of being creative on my own, I thought poetry was a good place to start because I figured, okay, it's always running through my head anyway. And I, I had written some poems, but I didn't know if they were any good. And I, but I knew that I knew that what was inside me and inside my psyche was more easy to express through poetry than any other means, especially compared to like writing articles about coconut oil or doing recording <laughs> and things like that. So, I mean, I love, I love coconut oil, but I totally know where you're coming from. <laughs> I do too. And I have written many, many glowing, glowing articles about it. Um <laughs> But yeah, and, and I and I thought I figured too that poetry to start if I was going to really dive into craft if I was really going to learn as much as I could poetry would be sort of the beginning like the germ of whatever it is I ended up writing every sentence would would matter every line would matter and that's definitely been the case I found it to be so nourishing for all the genres I work in going off of that have you ever found that maybe you started a project in one genre but then you've shifted it so you've written a poem but then you're like oh this has to be a story or you've written an article and you're like oh I kind of want to write a poem about this because sometimes I see news headlines and they're so oddly written like you get something super weird like polar bears actually appreciate the northern lights or something something just super bizarre and you're like that that reads more like a poem have you ever found that <laughs> yes absolutely um i i tend to be very attracted to nature metaphors and um sometimes my creative work will come out in a way and I, i'm not quite sure what it is yet um sometimes i'll write a poem and then i'll think okay can i also write a story about that exact thing uh i recently wrote a poem about this this person moving to the moon and working on a, at like a fast food restaurant there and oh, writing a, writing a passive aggressive letter home to their mother and <laughs> i was like I, i'm like this is a i love this poem this is mm. delicious and <laughs> I must know more about this person. It, it's, um, so, it's so quasi-realistic too, because you know in a few years we're probably going to have like a McDonald's or a Burger King on the moon. Like it's just going to happen, you know? <laughs> totally. The, new, the world is just rolling, isn't it? Change oh. is happening all the time. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so speaking of that then, I guess I kind of wanted to get into a couple, a couple specific poems. Um, I actually got a Kindle version of this, which is really interesting because I usually have paper versions, but occasionally 
usually I get a Kindle version. And it's nice because it has the option where you can kind of highlight it. But it's not nice if you're a little bit like me and a little bit tech illiterate. So please excuse me as I find (laughs) certain, certain lines that I wanted to ask about. Yeah, a lot of these poems are really interesting because you can you can sense that they're connected. I did notice that there was almost kind of an anxiety about being a mother that flowed through a lot of them. Like you'd get one line in each poem that kind of relates almost that connects us. Like in the back of your mind, you're always a little worried. Um, I assume that's probably based off your experience of having a daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I consider this book, well, all my work really, but I consider this book to be like a a time capsule of my psyche at a particular moment in time. And the moment in time that this was written was when I was a new mother. And that's sort of like, you know, when you have a kid, your kid gets born, but you get born too in a new way and your brain gets born in a new way. And I didn't realize how many changes in consciousness would come with motherhood and, and this sense of overarching awareness, suddenly being aware at all times of ambient dangers that could be lurking. And it can be very overwhelming. It was very overwhelming for me. And there's so much light and and love and goodness about parenting. And there's there's nothing I love more in my life than my daughter. Um, And at the same time, I think it's important to talk about the fears and darknesses and um, worries that can come with bringing a precious physical being into the world and desperately wanting her to thrive. You know, it can be very it can be very scary um, and overwhelming and also the most beautiful thing in the universe at the same time. And I I guess that danger kind of relates to the title Danger Flower. And I know that there's a poem in the collection and that's that's the the poem, that's the title of the, the collection. But there does seem to be that thread too, that there's a lot of beautiful metaphors, but there's always this kind of danger lurking underneath like a Venus flytrap, like something that's beautiful and kind of flourishing, but also kind of dangerous, I guess, kind of scary, (laughs) a little carnivorous, I think is the word. Yeah. (laughs) One poem I wanted to actually ask about is I noticed throughout the collection that you play a lot around with different forms and things and certain poems throughout the work have almost, I guess, this continuous flow like nesting dolls is the one I I picked up you see this a lot where a lot of them have almost this I guess it's almost like a piece of journalism where they have kind of the justified edges because it's like one block of wording and you you do this in different poems and things like this I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that form and this poem as well as well as the other ones that kind of relate to memory because it's almost like this this collection sometimes reads like a a shifty um high school yearbook I think sometimes (laughs) does that that kind of make sense <laughs> oh, for I'm the gonna, listeners, <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. Thank you for that. Um, it does. It reads quite like a shifty um, high school yearbook sometimes. <laughs> sort of like almost surreal, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the so that poem, nesting dolls. That's a a prose poem with so it how it looks on the page uh, is it's a it's a square essentially, and it's written in in full sentences like paragraph format, and in sort of a it's sort of a story, a vignette about memories of of being a child and then and then thinking sort of about what those memories mean. So I have a few poems like that in the book and there are different points in I, I wrote this book over a period of several years. So there were different points in which I felt like different forms were really connecting with what I wanted to say. I like having different 
forms in a book um, because I find, I don't know, it feels like kind of like stepping stones through a, through a pond or something. Like it's a little bit surprising as you turn the page, you don't know what you're going to get next. Um, and then there are other poems, which like the, the more recent poems that I, that I wrote that are in this collection, a lot of them have capitalized letters at the beginning of, of lines that are it's a kind of loose rhythm that I that I fell into towards the end of writing the collection. And I and I really love those pieces. They feel very surreal, very dreamlike, and they come from the language of my own internal brain space psyche. And and I, I love them dearly for that reason. It it is interesting, only because when I when I found out that you had a background in journalism, I thought, oh, well, the the justified kind of square spacing of some of these poems makes so much sense because it's almost the language is different from journalism but the structure and format is weirdly representative of it when it comes to the poems with the capitalization and the first lines even though they're kind of dreamlike I, I notice those ones too and they do stick out just because not every poem is kind of like that I thought especially some of those poems also had really really impressive imagery one of them called episodic depression I had a question about that because I was curious there's a line that says their father is here, but this isn't his house. Everything's grid-like. He can't move diagonally. And I thought that was so interesting because in a in a game of chess, it's always I think the bishop that moves diagonally. Correct? I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure exactly chess-wise, but oh. that that <laughs> feeling. <laughs> Maybe that's something I should know. But the feeling. So that poem is all about the feeling of depression, like real mm. deep like you're like you're sort of under the ice kind of depression where you're looking around but you can't can't function you can't be a part of things it's sort of a ghostly feeling I've gone through episodes of of deep depression at different points in my life but I found it to be especially especially complex and painful as a mother to go through a depressive episode because it's one thing to be depressed and to not have anyone who's really you know it, obviously ad- other adults can be affected but it's a different story when there's a baby crying for you and it's and you can barely drag yourself out of bed you know mm. it's very very painful and that line about their father is here, but this isn't his house. He's, everything's grid-like. You can't move diagonally. I that felt to me like I was. It can be hard to to delegate motherhood to somebody else mm-hmm. because it's so much about this individual relationship with this individual baby. And I had so much support at the times in my life, at the times in in new motherhood in which I was depressed. I had wonderful family members and my love, my partner to help. But at the same time, it was it never it didn't feel like enough. I couldn't, I wanted to replicate myself and send that self out to be the perfect mother while I, while I like lay down in the, in the fetal position upstairs. So that's sort of what I was trying to get at there. Those are a bit, those are some dark and twisty poems. They're not all that sad. Yeah, yes. <laughs> some of them are actually quite clever. We'll move forward with those ones as well in, in a second. I thought that's so interesting though, what you, what you've told me, because when I, I read it and I read about it being grid-like and that he can't move diagonally and that it's the father. I almost thought of it as like a chessboard with a bishop because bishops are like kind of like fathers and that mm-hmm. they can't, they can only do so much. Like you, if you're stuck on a, in a game, you can't always move the direction you need to move. Only the female piece can do that. So I don't know, <laughs> but that's, right. that's interesting to, to hear kind of what you said, because that gives a lot more light into that because I was so curious about that line. I thought that's, that's such an interesting line almost because you almost see it from a top-down view, right? You can, you yeah. Yeah. 
And, you know, and thank you so much for giving me that additional layer of interpretation, because it's so fascinating to me how I think this is a common thing in writing. It's not always my conscious mind that is deciding what the meanings are. Um, Sometimes it's something that like it comes from, I think it comes from the psyche, which I think is linked to everybody else's psyche. And and Mm. sometimes I think some info sneaks up into there that I might not logically consciously be aware of, but that makes perfect sense to your description of, of chess. Absolutely. That's what I kind of thought. But that's why I thought I'd ask you. I'm sure it's probably interesting being a writer and finding out that people see lines in different ways. I'm sure it's kind of a trippy feeling. (laughs) I I love it. I'm just so glad anyone wants to read it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great feeling. (laughs) Um, Let me just see. So speaking of more, more fun poems. So Forest Fire, this one made me chuckle. There's a line that says, say slut three times and I appear, say slut four times and I get a master's degree. And I actually laughed really hard after <laughs> that line because I was like, that's not what I expected, but it's so funny. Um, did you want to comment on that poem at all or any of the the lighter poems? Um. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah. There. I love that poem. Um, let me see. Wonder what else is it, funny here. It has here. kind of a, a bitter undertone, obviously, but there's something yeah. kind of rewarding by the end where it's like you almost you almost kind of snap because you're like, okay, if you say slut four times, I'm just gonna go and get a master's degree and write this poem, you know? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I love about this poem is it sort of it starts off. It, it's so it's all about the word the word slut, basically. And, um, and it's calling on memories I have of, of like sexual harassment in uh, growing up in a small town. And I like how uh, it's so funny, because I'm talking about my, I'm talking about my own work, but it feels like somebody else wrote this because it's Jacqueline from like several years ago. So I I, I feel like I'm like, I like how she does this. I like how (laughs) seeing yourself in third person, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I, I what I like about this poem is how past Jacqueline has has approached a subject such as like people doing doing a kind of violence upon her you know and and then and then also being able to come out of it and have and be funny and also dark about it and also like this image the, the 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 big image in this poem is about this world that's underneath all of those surface things this world in which the trees are actually talking the trees are the trees are there there's this like underlying dream world where i'm the one who has the power in that moment you know like I see myself as a 15 year old walking through the woods trying to avoid people's comments. But then I also see myself at that time, I see my current self sort of floating around there with my past self and being like, you're fine, you know, get through this you can yeah, handle it. For, for the readers, um, the poem's called Forest Fire, and it, it's very interesting because a lot of these poems are very visual. As soon as you read it, you can almost see it. Um, one of the lines say, says, slut makes me think of those clouds. Stop motion when I cut through the forest to school, which I thought was so interesting because immediately everyone knows kind of the, the stop motion clouds that you see in the sky. Like everyone can kind of picture that. I guess I was going to ask you as well, was there anything in specific you wanted to mention? Any poem you even wanted to maybe read? if we had time for that anything else you wanted to mention about the collection for sure well I just want to what I how I would describe this collection is um, it's sort of like if you wandered into a garden and then you were walking around and then some plants started telling you some weird stories and you're like huh this is odd but fun that's my (laughs) 
that's my vision of my book. <laughs> sort of like walking through a labyrinth and there of pokey plants and thorns and brambles and and poisonous things and also beautiful things and there's a deer there and there's an opossum and so it's also the kind of book that I hope people I hope people might want to pick up and enjoy like even if they aren't necessarily poetry people or they feel a little bit nerve like it's a bit nerve-wracking to open a book of poetry because I know that's very common there's so much pressure in our you know a lot of people their exposure to poetry has been so academic that it can be it can feel like oh okay I need to solve the problem of this poem rather than just enjoying it can I read this poem called Pony Closet? Absolutely, go ahead. Okay, cool. This this is sort of like a, there are some poems in the collection that are in sort of a child voice, and I really like this one. So Pony Closet. All the guests are here and also fruitcake, which arrived alone in a minivan. The potpourri has been refreshed. Ice cream is melting on the front steps. Everyone's feet are sticky. Everyone's fingernails are picking at apple skins. The games we play help prepare us for the future. When I slip into the closet to play with plastic horses, nobody notices. I like the smell of dust on carpet. Today is my day, my pony closet quiet day. I'm so lucky. God's looking at me straight today. Yesterday was my brother's day and the sky filled up with lightning. At least the lawn has that green smell now. So the worms are happy here. That was a beautiful reading. Um, that will sound really great over air as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good if it's a, a poetry to collection, a collection to read a piece just so people kind of know what it feels like because it is hard to talk about poetry often over air. Mm -hmm. Just as you mentioned, it is kind of a challenging thing for people to read. Sure. Was there anything else you wanted to say? Did you want to talk about the short story collection that you're working on? Sure. I'm. I'm right now. I'm working on a short story collection. It's my thesis for my my MFA, um, and it's the working title right now is Moth World, um, and it's a very similar kind of themes and. Uh, imagery to the poetry, but they're sort of surreal short stories. And so I'm coming up to the end of working on that, which is really exciting. And um, yeah, just, I really appreciate being on and thank you so much. And if anyone wants to connect with me, I'm on Instagram at Jacqueline DeForge. And I have my website is www.nestandstory.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the short story collection. And thank you for your time. I think that will conclude our interview today. For those who just tuned in, that was Maddie Robinson interviewing Jacqueline DeForge on her new poetry collection, Danger Flower. You can buy Danger Flower at a local bookstore near you. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month at 8 p.m. Mountain Time on 90.9 FM. Stay tuned! For all of our listeners and budding writers, tune in. The 2022 CBC Nonfiction Prize is now open for submissions. CBC Literary Prizes were established in 1979 and have continued every year since. The winner receives 6000 from the Canada Council for the Arts, has the opportunity to attend a two-week writing residency at the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity, and has their work published on CBC Books. 
Submissions are read by a panel of established writers and editors from across the country. The shortlist and winner will be decided by a jury comprised of three prominent Canadian writers. For any curious listeners interested, it costs $25 to enter the prize. Subgenres for nonfiction include memoir, biography, humor writing, essay, feature articles, and travel writing. Word count is 2,000 words. The timeline is anytime before February 28th at 11.59 p.m. If you're interested in winning the prize, check it out. There may be opportunity. You never know which piece the judges will choose. Our next segment on Writer's Block tonight is a short story written by Maria A. Ioannou. Maria A. Ioannou is a writer based in Cyprus, addicted to short stories, objects, and hybridities. She holds a PhD in creative writing from the University of Winchester in the UK, and she has received the Vice Chancellor's Excellence in Research Award in 2019 and the Immersion Writer State Prize in 2012. She has published two short fiction collections and a fairy tale in Greece. Her short fiction, Pillars, was nominated to be included in the anthology Best Small Fictions. Her work was longlisted in the Smoke Long Quarterly Grand Micro Contest 2021 and the Bath Flash Fiction Award 2021 and has been published in Sand, The Hong Kong Review, Tiny Molecules, Litro, The Daily Drunk, Flash Flood 2021, Milk Candy Review, and elsewhere. You can find more info about Maria at www.maria-alpha-ioannou.com. That's maria-alpha-ioannou.com. Without further ado, here is her piece of flash fiction, This Could Be a Story About People. This could be a story about people, but it's a story about leaves, how they chase one another with noise, discreet noise or no noise, a delirious crunchiness, twisty, hard, soft, wrinkled, leaves like dysmorphic kids in a minefield with squashed greenish veins, How leaves fall, how leaves fall all the time. It's okay to fall. Leaves do that every day and nothing terrible happens, nothing monstrous. This is a story about leaves that are still leaves no matter what. Flying, shaking, lingering, whipping window gloss, committing suicide while chasing rainbows, hurricanes, the burning sun, reaching out, touching other leaves, sliding on frowned, happy or in-between faces, escaping from roofs or mother trees, snatched on roofs or mother trees, benches, garbage bins, piling up on moth-covered graves, mourning like leaves, mourn by changing color by flapping on cold marble 
leached on broken flower pots, not letting go, squeezed in the corners of yards, transported in large groups, naked bodies in containers, masks wearing sardines in the subway, pushed and pushed by rusty shovels and brooms, suffocating, screaming, why are you doing this? I'm just a leaf. I'm supposed to fall. I'm supposed to stay in your yard. This is what I do for a living. This is a story about leaves aching, aching by the power of metal and soul and rain and wind and wheels and foot and boot and tongue and rank. Leaves big, small, green, orange, yellow, white, broken, stepped on, migrating leaves, baby leaves, floating, falling like tar snowflakes, tangled in thin air, in thin dehydrated hair, sucked in high-tech vacuums and laughing mouths, leaves standing still for a moment, pulsating on the wet ground, dying like leaves die, leaving tiny traces on a perfectly mowed grass, Sinking in perfectly heated pools, leaves, leaves, slowly deteriorating, waiting for spring. That was Maria A. Iwanu and her short story, This Could Be a Story About People. CJSW no adverbs allowed. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. This episode of Writer's Block featured an interview with Ethan Liu about his works of nonfiction, an interview with Jacqueline DeForge about her book of poetry recently released, a short literary segment by Emma Smith, and a short story reading by Maria A. Iwanu. If you missed this episode of Writer's Block, don't worry, you can always listen again on cjsw.com. To conclude this episode of Writer's Block, we're going to do one short literary feature on Henrik Ibsen's famous play, A Doll's House. Thank you for listening and make sure to tune in next month on cjsw.com or 90.9 FM. What are you doing? Taking off my costume. Oh, I see. There's nothing to worry about now, Nora. You've loved me as a wife ought to love her husband. It's just that you didn't have the understanding to be able to judge how you should express it. But you mustn't think you're any less precious to me just because you don't know how to take the initiative. I wouldn't be a man if your feminine vulnerability didn't make you doubly attractive to me. You mustn't take any notice of the hard things I said just now. It was the shock. I was terrified everything was going to collapse around my ears. That last segment was from the 1973 film adaptation of Henrik Ibsen's famous play, A Doll's House.
directed by Patrick Garland. Our last episode of Writer's Block featured a segment on French diarist Aeneas Nin. This episode will feature another short segment on women marking literary cartography, this time by focusing on the world of theater. We will be featuring a lookout and short retrospective on Henrik Ibsen's famous play, A Doll's House. While I love novels and the literary world of prose, the piece of literature that made the most distinct impression before my English degree is Henrik Ibsen's 1879 play, A Doll's House. A Doll's House is a three-act play. It premiered at the Royal Theatre in Copenhagen, Denmark, but became a sensation rather quickly. It became so popular that it had to be reprinted twice in three months and was translated into German, Finnish, English, Polish, Russian, and Italian. A Doll's House focuses on the married life of fictional woman Nora, a housewife who inadvertently kickstarts the plot of the play when she forges a man's signature on a legal document in an attempt to save her husband's life. While Nora tries to hide the effects of her forgery from her husband, he eventually finds out. Yet this play differs from other plays of the time and the era, as instead of the couple working out their problems and solving their issues, Nora realizes that her entire life has really just been play-acting at marriage. Recognizing that her entire life has been molded by other people and that she doesn't know who she truly is, Nora chooses to leave her husband, her children, and the setting of her house, which she calls a doll's house. While a woman leaving her husband isn't that controversial today, at the time in the world of theater, it caused a lot of outrage. In fact, in Germany, the ending was actually changed to become more palatable to the audience. In the alternate ending, Nora never leaves the stage or her children. She simply collapses onto the ground after arguing with her husband. Yet this ending was seen to destroy the plot and the intent of the play. The playwright himself called this ending a barbaric outrage. Yet the original ending of A Doll's House still holds strong today. Give it a listen. This is a reckoning, Torvald. What do you mean? Doesn't anything strike you about the way we're sitting here now? No? What? been married eight years. Don't you think it's significant that this is the first time that you and I, as husband and wife, have ever sat down to have a serious talk? What do you mean, serious? Eight whole years. No longer than that, from the time we first knew each other, we've never exchanged one serious word on a serious subject. But do you think I should have continually bothered you with all sorts of problems which you couldn't possibly have me? I'm not talking about your problems. I'm saying that we have never sat down and talked and tried to get to the bottom of anything together. My dear Noro, what good do you think it would have done you if we did? Well, that's just it. You never understood me. While Nora's journey from dependent housewife to independent human being is often seen as a feminist act, I believe the reason I keep returning to the play years after I first read it is because it's a lot more than that. 
If you watch the movie version of the play, you notice early on that Nora's house is decorated with paper chains. While paper chains are a common Christmas decoration, often handmade, on a deeper psychological level, they also represent the chains that bind Nora to her wifely duties, her husband, her children, but also the narrative or the illusion that she has created herself. Returning to the narrative of the doll's house, I began to realize that when Nora leaves the space of the doll's house, leaves this fake world that she has created with her husband and children, she's not just leaving the doll's house of her mind. The word doll's house is synonymous with a playhouse, yet the word playhouse is also synonymous with theater. So in my eyes, when I see Nora walk off the stage away from her husband, I've come to recognize that she's not just walking away from an invisible life that she's created. She's walking out of the world of literature itself. As an adult, I did more research on this play. I discovered that Nora's character was based off a real-life woman who left her husband and became a writer. In my eyes, this shows us that the play is a lot more complex than it first appears. It is not your typical Shakespearean comedy where the husband and the wife get back together after a series of feuds. But it is also not merely a feminist act either. It is something else entirely. Part of the reason this play holds up so well even after over a century is because it shows us that these illusions that we create for ourselves still exist. The boundaries and social ideas that we have may have changed over the past era, but boundaries still exist and we create them ourselves. Ibsen also supports this understanding of his own writings. In 1898, in a speech given to the Norwegian Association for Women's Rights, he insisted that he must disclaim the honor of having consciously worked for the women's rights movements. He claimed instead that his task was the description of humanity. In this way, I think the play is so controversial, yet so universal and interesting, because it's not really about a wife and a husband. It's not about a woman and a man. The play itself is about disregarding the boundaries and the paper chains that you have set upon yourself. It's about utilizing creativity to go beyond the normal and to see what lies ahead. It's about recognizing that while external societal expectations block you from doing something or acting a certain way or even thinking a certain way, the truth is that it's all created by yourself. You never understood me. I've been treated most unjustly, Torvald, first by father and then by you. What do you mean both of us have loved you more than anyone else in the world? You never loved me. You just enjoyed being in love with me. Well, what is all this? Oh, it's true, Torvald. When I lived at home with father, he fed me all his opinions until in the end I held the same opinions. I didn't. I kept quiet about it because I knew he wouldn't have liked it. He used to call me his doll child, and he played with me just as I played with my dolls. When I moved into your house... Well, that's no way to describe our marriage. All right, when Father handed me over to you, you arranged everything according to your taste. And I adapted the same taste. Perhaps I just pretended to. I really don't know. Probably a mixture of both. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. Looking back on it, 
I feel as if I have been living a beggar's life from hand to mouth. I made my living doing tricks for you, Torvald, and that's what you wanted. Your father's done me great wrongs. Your fault I've never come to anything. No, no. How can you be so unreasonable and ungrateful? Now, you've been happy here, haven't you? No, never. I thought I was, but I never have been. Not happy? No. Cheerful, that's all. You've always been so kind to me, but our house... It's never been anything but a playroom. Here I was your doll wife. Just as at home I was father's doll child and my children as well. They've been my dolls. I used to enjoy it when you played games with me. Just as they enjoyed it when I played games with them. That's all our marriage has been, Torva. Have you thought what people will say? I can't go worrying about that. All I know is it's something I have to do. This is outrageous. It's going back on your most sacred duties. And what, in your opinion, are my most sacred duties? Well, surely you don't have to ask me that. I mean, your duties to your husband and your children. I have other duties which are just as sacred. No, you haven't. What, for example? My duties to myself. 